published in 1862, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo is the novel of the century, according to David Bellows, professor of French and comparative literature at Princeton University. When asked on the Great Books podcast, what qualifies this novel to be on the show, Bellows responded, quote, it tackles a huge range of human experience with an enormous amount of passion. If there ever was a great book, it must be Les Miserables. The story focuses on the suffering ones, the humiliated. It's set in the social, political, and economic upheaval of early 19th century France. The poor people who are worthy of our pity were caught up in the consequences of what Jeff Snyder calls the first modern business cycle. Michael Pettis, in his 2001 book, The Volatility Machine, identifies it as the first modern deglobalization, and Frederick Engels called it the first general crisis. Engels is, of course, the co-author of the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848 in response to the shocking worldwide disorder. Karl Marx and Engels are said to suggest that capitalism has an expiration date, that capitalism was an ahistorical phenomenon which would burn up the limited fuel of labor and then sputter. And at that point, communism would take over and redistribute the existing wealth equitably because there was a limit to human wealth creation. This, over the long sweep of history, is a pessimistic view of human character and potential. But humans don't live across history, they have a handful of decades. And when capitalism does find itself in a cul-de-sac, as it did during the first general crisis, and the long depression, and the great depression, and now this, year 13 of the silent depression, well then, terminal capitalism sounds perfectly reasonable. In this, the 15th episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder discusses the barricades and autonomous zones of Les Miserables, Marx and Engels' thesis, late-stage capitalism, the Soviet Union, and present-day China, but all in defense of capitalism, without denying that it is going down the wrong road, toward the barricades. Hello, everybody. In today's show, we are going to discuss a little bit more about the social and political aspects of the monetary disorder that we're living through. And we're going to be answering questions that are pretty important as to why does a sizable proportion of our society think that communism, socialism are more appealing than what they see capitalism is putting forward. Now, joining me on this 15th episode of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production, and me, I'm Emil Kalinowski, and joining me, of course, will be Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra and Investments. And we're going to be looking at Jeff's two most recent articles at Real Clear Markets. And Jeff, we're going to start out by talking about the 30s. And I'm going to trick the audience. The audience is thinking the 1930s. Nah, that's not good enough. That's good enough for some other podcasts. We're going to the 1830s. Jeff, what happened in the 1830s that matters today? Well, first of all, we had in the 1832 an unexpected global pandemic that swept across the, the entire face of the world and hit uh, Europe, even the U.S. particularly hard. I saw a statistics where it said in 1832, the summer of 1832, almost a third or a half of New York City had been emptied. 
because everybody was afraid of this this this, this new disease that that uh, seemed to strike out of nowhere and was so severe that it could kill you in a, in a day or two. And so we had this this global pandemic that, especially in Europe, was combined with an economic depression, a deep and prolonged economic depression that eventually sent people, in, especially in Paris, into the streets to create their own autonomous zones, uh, barricading the streets, workers' paradise, all of these things that we, we are somewhat becoming more familiar with again today. I bet their economic zones were uh, more romantically named, more, more literate and romantic and beautiful than Chaz. I bet you there were, it was, what were, what was happening back then? Well, I think the, the reason they're, they're received and remembered as a romantic ideal is largely because of the work of Victor Hugo, who wrote the book Les Miserables back in uh, 1861, I believe. So it was a couple decades afterwards, but you know, there's this romantic story set around what is essentially a detective story about, you know, people taking to the streets and protesting against an unjust, oppressive society, which they can't even live in anymore. They're so poor and so oppressed that, you know, they have to sell their teeth and their women are forced into prostitution. That's, that's the kind of world that it looked like, especially in 1832. And then you had this epidemic show up, which was cholera, by the way, which which because it was a waterborne disease and because it was the bacteria involved with it, it hit the poorest parts of especially Paris far more than the richer part of the city, which in some cases were, were barely even touched by the disease. And so it was almost this perfect storm that I think today would be extremely recognizable to people under trying to understand what's going on right now. And so there's, there's this, this basic underlying uh, story, economic depression, disease, inequality, leading to these essentially uh, this basic street theater across one of the, the world's leading cities. Well, I mean, you say street theater, and that, of course, makes me think of that beautiful movie, that beautiful Australian actor singing his way through. And I've got it right here, and I am now going to proceed to not read but sing a few chapters to our audience. Jeff, the 1930s, you can't understand them without understanding the 1920s. And I know that there was a very big and important economic event. One of the, it was in fact referred by uh, Frederick Engels as the first general crisis in the 1820s. Tell us about the 1820s and how they affected the 1830s while I begin reading. Well, they, you know, to, today to us, the business, the concept of the business cycle is almost intuitive and, and innate, right? We're, we're very much familiar with recession and economic booms and those kinds of things. But in 1825, for the first time in, in global history, we had this business cycle appear for a reason that was not war or famine. Before then, it had always been, if there was an economic depression, it was because, you know, you know the massive war or massive crop failures or things like that. But in 1825, we had a financial panic, again, sounds familiar, very bad central bank action or inept central bank action responding to it, which led to the proliferation of really severe economic depression, widespread unemployment, and wage-driven inflation, which, as Engels pointed out, was the first time in history we had this business cycle for the sake of the business cycle. Now, its origins are also very familiar. In 1797, Great Britain went off of the gold standard in order to fight the Napoleonic Wars. 
which led to a tremendous inflationary currency throughout just not just Great Britain and France as well, but that spread all over the world, especially to South America. There's even the famous case of uh, the Principality of Poye, which I believe is, was, was supposedly located in some place in Nicaragua, but it didn't exist. Yet brokers throughout Great Britain were able to sell investments in this fiction because that was the, that was the, the, the process of the time. Again, you know, subprime mortgages were not the first time that we've gone through this, but it was the first time in 1825. And so it was very difficult for people who were affected by the Depression to understand what was going on. There was no war. The Napoleonic Wars had ended more than a decade before. There was something going on with banks in Britain, but why is there widespread unemployment throughout France? And it was really difficult. I mean, really nasty depression. We're talking, um, there aren't really good statistics about how many people unemployed, but you have anecdotes of wage, wage rates declining by a third to maybe, a, maybe more than that. You have massive layoffs. You have, you know, uh, um, all sorts of government, tr- government attempts at a hand that had handouts, you know, they had bread cards and something like, you know, a third of the, the entire city population of Paris that signed up for this kind of thing. So widespread poverty without the ability to really understand and explain where it had come from. This is something that, uh, it's my understanding that this could be considered the first globalization cycle. Many people consider globalization to be a trend, uh, a moral trend, whereby fraternity with the greater cultures and we're all integrated and it's a moral pursuit. But actually I think of it as an economic cycle, just a longer one, it's my understanding that this was the very first globalization that we would recognize today. And um, and beginning in, I know a little bit about this story, and uh, beginning in 1826, the governments of Latin America stopped bond payments. And by February of 1826, as you were saying, it, it had an effect because what happened, there was the when they stopped making those bond payments and when these fictional countries, what the country that you were mentioning earlier, people thought that was a real country that they were investing in. It was completely made up. The riots took place. So it wasn't just affecting the financiers. Uh, There were economic consequences that then rolled into society. And there were riots. I'm reading here, there were riots among weavers in Norwich. And these spread throughout Britain in the next three months. By the summer of 1826, the crisis had spread to Berlin, Amsterdam, St. Petersburg, Vienna, Rome, and Paris. In the general panic, as banking houses fell one after the other, the remaining solvent European banks desperately hoarded money. And we would see that over and over again for the next 200 years, the hoarding of money. Yeah, and I think it's a, your important point there is that the effects of the banking panic and, the, and the, the collapse of the investment cycle were immediate. And they were not just limited to banks and brokers and you know the wealthy. In fact, as John Maynard Keynes would say uh, 100 years later, it is the labor market, it is the, the workers where the pain of economic depression really hits, hits home. And the other part of it was it wasn't just immediate. The workers absorbed the blow. It was prolonged. That may be even more important point is that it was never really fixed. And in large part, I mean, you can understand because they didn't really identify what was going on. They had no idea. As far as anyone was concerned, it was, you know, the corrupt king. That's, that was one of the cries in Paris as they manned the barricades was that, you know, it was the government and the Jesuits. That's who were blamed for society's ills. They couldn't connect this money supply problem, the business cycle, then economic depression, how it hit 
the labor force with what was going on in their lives. And so they assigned it to any number of things or whatever ideologue or demagogue was sounded the most, most uh, sensical to their, their situation. The losses to British investors were huge and the pages of the British press were filled with anger, bluster, and threats. It would take a full generation before Latin American borrowers would be able to regain to the uh, access to the international markets. But how did this, how did this flow uh, from Britain into Paris? And how does that connect then to our present day and what we opened the show with, where we talked about that uh, presently people you know, they don't think very highly of capitalism and socialism and communism is becoming more appealing. What, how does that connect? Well, the global financial system, as you pointed out, you know, there have been waves of globalization throughout, our, throughout human history. And maybe that was the first modern globalization wave, which connected especially financial uh, networks. You know, the, 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 the French banking system with the Banque de France was connected intimately with Bank of England and the English financiers because there was a vast amount of, of intercontinental trade that went through Europe and therefore money flows back and forth between France and England, including war reparations after the Napoleonic Wars. In fact, uh, according to some scholars, it was the Bank of France which bailed out the Bank of England that, let, that kept it from being even worse. So yes, there was jobs saved even back then among central bankers. So there were intricate. There, that's what that's what globalization really means is the intricate links, often ad hoc, often that are put together in, in in these these loose networks that occur between what used to be separated systems. That's really what we mean when we talk about globalization. So you have failure in one part that gets transmitted to other parts, and then because the system is inherently unstable, it creates only grow, you know, a positive feedback loop where the instability creates even more monetary problems, which creates more instability, and then it affects the, great, the, the economy itself, which only makes everything even, even worse. And that becomes that sort of downward progression that is impossible to stop. At least it certainly was in the 1820s because, again, they had no experience with this business. There was no war. There was no famine. The famine actually showed up, in, unfortunately, for France in 1827. So a couple of years into the depression, they then, then got the famine, which made everything even more miserable. So that by the 1830s, they were taking to the streets, protesting pretty much everything, including the cholera epidemic. I'm going to read a quote from Casimir Perrier. I'm not a French speaker, but he would be made prime minister. And you're saying he wryly observed, quote, the trouble with this country is that there are many men who imagine there has been a revolution in France. No, sir, there has been no revolution. There has been simply a change in the person of the chief of state. What, what does that mean? There was an unpopular king after Napoleon, Charles X, who was essentially unpopular. And so what happened as the depression deepened, especially in Paris, was there was a move to replace them. The, a lot of people in Paris wanted to go back to the, the French Republic under the French Revolution, and ironically, they believed the best representation of France's republic was Napoleon Bonaparte. So they, there was a lot of Bonapartists who wanted to go back to that way of doing things and believed that it was the corrupt king who had caused their depression and misery and therefore wanted to replace them. Except in the uh, three days of revolution in 1830, um, there was nobody ready to take over from Charles X as he had abdicated. So they, they brought in another uh, monarchist. 
uh, Philip de Orléans, who wasn't, who was, I guess he was popular in the beginning, but he wasn't very popular for very long because the depression didn't change with the change in government, which is what Casimir was talking about, is that we haven't really changed anything. We just flipped ahead of state. And so that led to this idea, this romantic idea that change would have to come from the bottom, that the people themselves would have to take to the streets and barricade and create their own autonomous zones because nothing else would change the situation which they didn't understand. It was economic depression for, we don't know why. I mean, it's, it's obviously the government. And so it was this misplaced anger over something that was brand new in history that led them to go to the streets and, under, and try to, to affect what they thought would be a revolution and get, go back to the, to the ways of the French Revolution in the, in the late uh, 19th, 18th century, which was, you know, I don't understand why they would thought it was, was best represented by Napoleon, but I, you know, maybe that's what what makes sense to them. And I think that's the important point. They were trying to make sense of their own situation without very, without, with incomplete information about what was actually going on at the time. You say that the big mistake, the main lesson, if you will, was in official forces, even society at large, failing to even try to work out the reasons behind what was going on. The actual forces beyond the visible spectrum of engaging in street theater. And that's so familiar to present day is we have many problems, but one of the main ones is that the economy has been suffering and underlying it all is this inability for our monetary order to create uh, money for opportunity to create credit growth and uh, expansion. At least that's what I think about the present day. But what was it... uh, what was it back then? What was the main lesson, the big mistake that they were missing? And what did it then lead to into the future? Well, you know, we say that what, what, nothing is new in history. And if you go back to the 1830s and, and you tried to tell the people are taken to the streets of Paris that their problems started in London banks giving out loans to emerging markets, they would have thought you were nuts. They would have <laughs> thought you were crazy. But that's what really what happened. It's, it's, the, it's the inability to comprehend what's really taking place and what's really causing all of this mess and economic misery, that it wasn't, you know, a corrupt king. Yes, the king was corrupt in the French, but that was not what caused the, the, the depression of 1826 and 27 that continued on to 1832. It wasn't what caused the famine. and It wasn't what caused the cholera epidemic. It was all of these things that were combined without really a lot, a lot without really being able to explain, especially the underlying economic problem, that led people to believe that we just, it's time for revolution. Now, the important point about 1832 was it didn't last more than a day. The government troops came in and, and basically slaughtered the, the people in the bar- under the, regarding the barricades. And it, wasn't, it wouldn't be until 1848 that the French would go back to the Second Republic because by then there had been a movement to start to understand what was going on behind these things? What was this business like? What is widespread mass unemployment? Where does that come from? And there was this, you know, there was no school, single unified school of thought about that. It broke off into many different directions, including what was, you know, essentially a more uh, well-known one in certain circles from Frederick Engels and Karl Marx, who said that, okay, there's this new phenomena in society that's causing massive upheaval that has a tremendous downside to it where capitalist, uh, capitalist companies and capitalist uh, um, people are essentially exploiting workers to create profits for themselves. And that had become their explanation for 
what, what they were seeing, which was essentially the industrial revolution, creating the modern economic processes that today we take for granted. What did Karl Marx and uh, Engels believe in? What was it that uh, they said that the industrial revolution was temporary, and then once we reach a certain level of wealth, then it's going to be necessary to redistribute that wealth. And uh, that could make sense in a depression, the ultimate failure of capitalism. That's when that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, what, we were, what we're really talking about here is we're trying to understand why socialism and communism has become sort of in vogue with a sizable segment of the population today when I think most people's immediate sensible reaction is, what? I mean, communism it kills people. It didn't work. It doesn't work everywhere. It's gone. So there's this natural tendency to just dismiss this stuff as, as a bunch of, you know, you know uh, perverse comedy almost. It's, why are these people talking about social? Doesn't they know... Don't they know it killed a hundred million people? It's, you know, it, it, but you really have to understand what, what, what they were saying and how they viewed the world, especially as it related to the stuff we're talking about here in order to understand why it's become so accepted. Why, you know, it's not just that people are talking about socialism. A lot of people today, you may not know this, actually believe that it's true. They actually believe that Karl Marx has been proven correct. And you can't understand why they believe that if you don't really know what Karl Marx was saying. What is communism? What is socialism? I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what those things are. You know, people, uh, has something to do with controlling the means of production. Well, that's true, but really it's about when the control of the means production goes from the capitalist to the state. To put it very simply, to oversimplify just for the sake of this medium that we're, we're using here, what the communists said was, yes, capitalism has its good points. In fact, we're, we're you know, Marx and Engels were witnessing it as it was taking place. In other words, capitalism had the ability to unleash what they called productive forces, which, I mean, we all understand intuitively as well. What that meant was the capitalists and workers would get together and they would create this, this innovation and technological advance that would, that would create uh, progress in society, real economic progress, real societal progress. That was a good thing. However, it was inherently unstable because in order for this process to work, the capitalist had to continually exploit and, and, and steal from his workers what we call profits. That's what the Marxists actually believe, that the capitalists have to steal profits from the workforce in order to achieve this, this revolutionary advance. Jeff, you just mentioned that capitalism is unstable. And after 2008, Hyman Minsky gained a lot of credibility and he was previously somewhat unknown as an economist because he had a, a theory that sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that instability is natural within the system, that the better things go, the more unstable it is underneath. Is there any relationship? Is, are you familiar with his work and can you tie it back to uh, maybe what uh, Marx and Engels were, were thinking? I think Minsky, along with Joseph Schumpeter, who was, who was another one who, who basically said, you know, talked about, he was famous for uh, coining the phrase creative, def creative destruction. What they're really talking about, yes, that in ca the capitalism is messy. We know that. That's what the business cycle is. It is revolutionary. It, is, it creates all sorts of upheaval. But in general, especially over time, what we expect is that capitalism creates wealth, even though it's inherently lumpy, it's inherently unstable, it's, it's messy, it's a very messy process. It, you know, things grow, they erase, they get, you know, businesses come, grow up, they get destroyed. That's what Schumpeter is talking about. 
These kinds of things are necessary ingredients to, to behind capitalism, what Adam Smith called the invisible hand, how the society actually progresses. And what Marx and Engels said was, yes, that's true, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an expiration date on it. That capitalism is a temporary condition that will transform a largely agrarian, primitive society into a wealthy, modern industrial society that gets to be so wealthy that at some point, There'll be there won't even be need for much uh, by the way of labor and work. Jeff, I I naturally rebel against that idea that there's a limit to human ingenuity, human expansion. But you know there have been uh, there have been the dark ages that lasted several hundred years, not just one, but a couple, as you've told me before. Um, and I suppose now you know we are approaching. I was just talking to a uh, Nick Black of. Uh, the show that we were on, Crypto and Coffee, Coffee and Crypto. And we were talking about uh, that maybe we're coming up to this new synthetic intelligence age where people are going to be put out of work because the robots and the computers are going to be doing everything. Looking back over time, we've had these dark ages and maybe we're on a cusp of a, a point where humans won't be required. But is that legitimate or is no, the natural human human, uh, what would it, what trajectory of human affairs and civilization is always forward and upward and with the exception of long dark ages. But I would think you're giving up if you're thinking that there's a limit to human achievement. Yeah, I think that's the fundamental flaw in Marx and Engels thinking and all the intellectual descendants that have been bred from this idea that capitalism is a temporary condition that creates all this wealth Therefore, at that point, once we identify this plateau, for example, I mean, this, this period where capitalism is so inherently, it's robbed so much from its workforce, it can no longer create enough forward momentum. That's when the revolutionaries are supposed to come in, confiscate property from the capitalists, and then redistribute it according to what they call social justice. That's really what the, the point here. But the idea is it's predicated on capitalism creates the wealth. But where is the point where, you know, what is enough wealth for a society? Where is terminal wealth? You know, the, however you want to call it, that's what the communists really believe. It's not a competing system to create wealth. It's what they believe is the successor system once capitalism exhausts itself. And so that's really what we're kind of seeing here today is this idea that maybe we've got to terminal wealth. Maybe we've reached that plateau where the workers are so exploited by the capitalist pigs that they that they they're now being impoverished at the expense of every 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 form of forward progress. You know, uh, capitalist shareholders are the only ones who are reaping the benefits of the last dozen years. The workers haven't really progressed much at all. Therefore, that's a really big signal that hey, end stage or late stage capitalism must be taking place right now. And that's that's really what what communism is supposed to supposed to be. It's not about the Soviet Union. It's not it's not about even the Chinese, I mean, you look at the Chinese model of communism, recognize this very thing. In fact, the, the Chinese, in, when, the, when the Soviet Union uh, fell in on itself in the early 1990s, they sent teams of researchers into the former Soviet Union to try to identify what went wrong in communist Russia in order to not become the next communist Russia to fall in, you know, at that time, a, a whole bunch of dominoes across Eastern Europe. And what they, what they decided was, exactly what we're talking about, Emil, 
what they said was Marx was right in that you can't impose communism on a society before it reaches terminal wealth. That's the big mistake the Soviets made. They thought they had achieved that kind of that kind of a plateau. It, it turned in on themselves. It turned in against themselves. Therefore, the Chinese weren't going to make the same mistake. So, communist China in the early 1990s went on essentially a capitalist spree, a limited capitalist spree, which reinvented China. It reinvented the Chinese economy in the same exact way, turned a largely agrarian, backward economic system into a modern industrial powerhouse. And so, again, the idea is you use capitalism, and then once it reaches its final stages, once it gets to its point where it can no longer move the ball forward down toward the goal line, that's when the revolution, that's when true communism t- kicks in. Revolutionaries show up and start confiscating everything all in the name of the greater good. Do you think, well, I'm surprised that they thought that uh, that Soviet Union hadn't waited long enough as opposed to dismissing the idea of terminal wealth. But maybe that's just my hangup as an, as an optimist, thinking that the future is always brighter, that we can expand to the inner planets, the outer planets, and just keep going. But, Jeff, what about, you've written very often about the 19th National Party Congress in October of 2017. Do you think that that was, in the terms that we're speaking right now, that was, that was the announcement that we have reached, for intents and purposes, in China, the terminal uh, limit of our experiment with capitalism? We will no longer be getting wealthy at an accelerating rate. We'll be just trying to hold on to what we have. Yeah, I think that was definitely one of the driving forces behind Xi Jinping's takeover of the communist government and making it more authoritative was the idea that, you know, they had always they had always envisioned going back to Deng Xiaoping in the early 1990s when the three represents became part of communist ideology in China was the idea that we'd, we'd grow the economy, grow the economy, and then hopefully by 2020, 2025, whatever, we're going to be so wealthy, we're going to, we're going to hit that point where we can start doing our true communism revolution. We can really start to bring what they called the majority into the system. But, you know, I think the Great Recession and the global financial crisis in 2008-2009 absolutely interrupted their plans to the point where they have to believe that this environment that we see today looks a lot like, you know, this is it. We're not going to go much further. Therefore, we have to speed up the process. I think that's what's really behind the authoritative authoritative turn that the communist Chinese government has taken over the last couple of years is, okay, maybe we fell short of where we want it to be, but it doesn't look like, you know, it looks like capitalism has finally exhausted itself. We're we're at that point. We're in the plateau. Therefore, we got to start working ahead for this this very different future where we're more concerned about redistribution and justice or what they call justice rather than we were about economic growth. And that's what, that's what we've seen from the communist government. I think it's a viewpoint that's shared outside of communist China by quite a lot of people. I don't think, uh, you know, most people, especially in America, maybe in Europe, it's a little bit different, but in America, I don't think people understand how the term late stage capitalism has become an accepted part of what people believe is going on. It's a very sizable portion of the population. We're not just talking about radicals who are now protesting in the street, why they're talking about anti-capitalism everywhere they go. 
just regular folks in New York City, for example, that are talk, just say the term late stage capitalism whenever they see the expensive price of shoes or some ridiculously expensive watch where they think, you know, here we are, this, this massive inequality where capitalism has, le- has reached that point where it's no longer creating enough wealth for everybody and that the capitalists are exploiting their workers so much in order to keep profits going at any rate that it's impoverished everybody else at the expense of the entire societal system. That's really what's going on. And I think it is a very widespread, again, accepted term by a lot of people, late stage capital or end stage capitalism. And I think, well, I don't deny that we have all those problems that we're discussing, the inequality, the fact that capitalism has malfunctioned. But my uh, contention would be, you know, part of the problem is that this is not being discussed openly and that this is a natural part of capitalism is that it finds itself, it goes down the wrong road too far and it's got to turn around and reset somewhat. I think part of the problem is that the people in charge, and it's something that you often write about, is that people in charge are saying there's nothing wrong. We've got it all under control. Instead of admitting, yeah, since 2008, things have been wrong and they look much like the 1930s. Instead, they're saying, we're going to do some dollar swaps with Europe and the Bank of Japan and stocks are up now and we're going to be buying corporate debt and we're just going to keep the system going. And I yeah, suppose they, I know, don't blame them because... It's a really good oh, point, though, because it makes it worse, right? I mean, that's where, I mean, the stocks that go up because of everybody believes because of the Federal Reserve, which only proves their point even more because it says the rich fat cats on Wall Street are getting rich while we look around. This is the economic boom. This is really the this is what capitalism is producing as a boom where everybody who's in stocks and the, and the rich, you know, the 1%, they're all doing really well. Nobody else is. That's definitely late stage capitalism. So, you know, I, you, may, you also made the point that, you know, we don't we aren't really discussing these things. That, that goes both ways, because when people who are, you know, uh, um, not necessarily steeped in the ideology of Marxism, immediately dismiss all of this stuff as the whining, a bunch of uh, spoiled crybabies who are whining over, you know, don't they know how good they have it? You know, these kinds of things that, that are not helpful to understanding the situation as it really is. And it's, it's both sides. The people who are advocating socialism don't understand why the last 12 years have been like the last 12 years. Well, the people who are not even really arguing, but just immediately rejecting that, that, that idea are simply doing so because they, they believe that, well, why are we even having this conversation? The economy's booming. We've achieved so much wealth in society that if you're unhappy, you must be a, a spoiled crybaby. So we, were, we initially talked about how you wrote two articles and your other articles also at Real Clear Markets. And it's, uh, it was posted this Friday and it's, it's uh, called A Massive Problem That Has Them Searching for One. I know we've kind of covered a little bit of that, but can you talk about what is in this article and then maybe what uh, Miss Lowry has written about? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, essentially... Um, illuminating a little bit about how this idea of late stage capitalism has become again accepted and believe it's it's almost proven to many people which is a very significant seg- segment of the population i get, i think that's that would be a surprise to most people who basically just go about their lives and read the the financial media and think that well everything's really good i mean the unemployment rate's low jay powell seems to be happy the stock market's advancing it was at record highs not that long ago before we got to 2020 
But even the, even this year, that's all, you know, it's some pandemic. It's not really the problem with the system itself. And so there's, there's disconnects everywhere on both sides, of the, all sides, really. And we're trying to understand what's really going on. And, you know, yeah, the, we do have a tremendous amount of wealth that has been created over the years. Our society is better off than any society has ever been before, but yet to the Marxist, especially when you look at the chart of GDP, it does look like we're hit that plateau. We've gotten to that stage where the inherent contradictions that Marx and Engels talked about 150 years ago seem to be, and seem to be working themselves out in what, what's going on today, this massive inequality. And usually the, the capitalists will say, well, yeah, inequality is inherent in the system. We want inequality, right? Because we want people with good ideas to be able to get rich because that's how this thing really works. But if it's only, if it's only rich people getting richer, as they seem to believe, then it doesn't help advance our cause of capitalism, which is, seems to be malfunctioning because it is malfunctioning. You go back to the last 12 years, and it's very difficult to argue that hey, we aren't in a plateau because we are in a plateau. So the discussion isn't about the plateau. It's about what's causing it and why it's there. Why is it temporary? Is this really the end stage? And that's a completely different topic to, to discuss. And, it, and we're not really talking then about what each other wants, each, each side really wants to talk about. We're, we're essentially talking past each other. I often refer to this time period that we're in as in the silent depression. Uh, and I think of it as the third global worldwide depression of the last 150 years. And the first one in the last 150 years was the long depression. And the way that one ended, uh, there wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough gold. Everyone had gone on the gold standard. And all of a sudden, the mines weren't producing enough gold. And so we were in this terrible deflation. But thankfully, there was a discovery in South Africa. Gold started to come onto the market. There was an election in 1896, and it seemed like there was a consensus decision by society to move forward. I think the same thing happened in after the Second World War, that the Great Depression was over. It was a consensus that the old order was behind us. And after the Second World War, we began to move towards a new future. Jeff, have you thought about how, how do we get out of this, the silent depression? How, what does it take? It's, does it take, a, what, society, an election, a crisis? How do we move forward? Well, it takes an awareness of the problem. And it's, it's funny that, I mean, you go back to the 1930s. I don't, I, again, I don't think people are aware, but the Communist Party of the USA was incredibly popular in the 1930s. There was, a, there was a rally in Madison Square Garden in New York City, capacity crowd, 22,000, standing room only, to hear the chairman of the Communist Party speak, right in the center of what's supposed to be capitalism. And so, you know, this is nothing new either. Back then, they said the same things that the people, the socialists today are saying. They said, oh, Great Depression, 1930s, terminal wealth. This is, this is time for the revolution because capitalism has finally run its course. It's done Marx was right. That's what everybody, that's what the Communist Party and the Socialists were saying in the 1930s. And of course, it didn't happen either. Eventually, of course, it cost us, you know, we had to go through the Second World War to get through the other side. But once the system stabilized, once the monetary system was stabilized after Bretton Woods, that all that ideology, that, that, the, the idea that, you know, there's a terminal stage of capitalism or there's a, there's a limit to wealth creation, all that stuff just disappeared. It dissipated because 
obviously in the 50s especially, people understood, oh, there's, there really is more growth coming. There really is more to this. That maybe there isn't a limit here and that the socialists aren't, wrong, aren't right, that, that capitalism does have a terminal point. You, you end your article saying, unleash the productive forces. And step one is, we'll just have to fire all the central bankers first. Uh, Jeff, do you have any final thoughts on this broad, unusual topic that we typically don't cover that, that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, I, I want to I make clear that the reason we wanted to talk about this today is because I want people to understand what's really behind what's going on. It's not just about euro dollars, not just about central bankers. As you point out a lot of times, Emil, there's social and political consequences to all of these things. And if you, you know, just paying attention even marginally over the last 10 years, you can see how they're escalating time and time and time and time again as economic pressure grows. And part of the reason for that is there's an intellectual foundation behind it. And it's not, you know, people say socialism, ah, it's a bunch of, you know, communists that, that's been disproved by hit. You got to understand what these people are believing and what they're seeing on the ground. To them, this thing, you know, they're Marxist professors who have been telling them about this stuff for years. They look prescient. They look downright scientific because they said this was going to happen and then it happened. Meanwhile, the, the supposed, you know, Templars of, uh, the templates of capitalism, the central bankers keep saying, everything's great, stock market, stock market, stock market, and it just plays right into their hands because it, to them, it further, it adds fuel to the fire, it's further evidence that we're in this terminal, late stage, end stage, whatever you want to call it, that capitalism has gone as far as it can possibly go. Therefore, today, right now, is the time for the revolutionaries to take over and start doing what Marx and Engels had envisioned all along. I want people to understand why that's happening, what's, what's really behind it, what they believe, and then how they're matching that intellectual foundation with reality, which the as I, I think I ended the article by saying, because the economy is on their side. And that's what we have to change. We get the economy growing again, this, this infatuation with socialism will disprove itself because it will show, oh, there is more to capitalism. There isn't an end stage. And once you do that, com this infatuation with communism and socialism becomes a contradiction and it just dissipates like it did in the 40s and 50s. Some people, and I, I hate to kind of sneak in a little bit of economic data, but I think it's important. Some people will say, you're overdoing it, Jeff. There's not going to be any revolution we had a dark downturn, a sharp one. Yeah, it was maybe it was caused by the pandemic. Maybe it was caused by the government shutdown. But now we're rebounding. Uh, looking at the initial claims and the continuing claims in the United States for unemployment, I am finally disturbed. I am finally unsettled. I almost I would like to consider it almost a national emergency, because we've exited the point where there was a very understandable reason why there was such a surge in unemployment. Now, I don't know why initial claims are leveling out at the level they are. I would think that they would be dropping like a stone back towards a normal level. Instead, they're leveling out at a rate that is double the worst in data series history, and they're sticking there um, a quarter after all this began. I'm a little bit I'm unsettled, and I think it's ratcheting up the pressure if we're going to continue seeing these horrid numbers in the United States and, I imagine, around the world. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because, you know, you could say that, okay, yeah, the last couple of months have been bad and they've added a lot to the, the, the significant economic pressures that have been witnessed, whether socialist or not, and, you know, however you want to interpret that, but that we're on our way back, back up to the sun again and things will be fine in very short order. And then we can go back to calling everybody a bunch of whiny crybabies, except, you know, when you look at especially jobless claims, because that is, again, what we've been talking about all along. This modern finance globalized business cycle, as John Maynard Keynes pointed out, and you don't have to agree with what, what Keynes said to, to understand what, the, what he said about this, this particular topic was actually dead on accurate. These modern financial monetary deflationary events, they hit the labor force and the workers the hardest. It's by its very nature. It's an, an, innate, an innate part of the capitalist system. That part Marx and Engels had correct. So we have to understand that these things are combining in a way that makes sense to the socialist vision, that workers are suffering. Why are they suffering? People, you know, the, the status quo, central bankers who are supposedly answering for capitalism haven't been able to provide them with any good answers. And they really need to because, as you point out, Emil, a million and a half, which is where we've been for the last three weeks, around a million and a half in jobless claims, is double, as you said, double what had been prior records and it's sticking. It seems to be sticking around that level. That's it's an, it's an unthinkable level of economic destruction that's taking place. And it's only going to add more fuel to the fire that, Hey, it's time for the revolution. We're in, we're in late stage capitalism. It's, it's right here in all the numbers and without a competing explanation that actually makes sense and is consistent, it's only going to win more and more adherence. Well, we're going to try to do our part and offer a competing explanation on future shows. So I invite the audience to come back again next week and to tune in to all your favorite podcasting apps. We're adding more and more. The latest one we just added was iHeartRadio. So you're, you can find this show anywhere on any podcasting system. You can find it on YouTube. And of course, you can find Jeff at Real Clear Markets. You can find him at Alhambra Investments. You can find him at Twitter, on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. And you can find me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, I will talk to you again next week. Take care, Emil.